Welcome to the Doximity Podcast, where we talk to people who are transforming healthcare. This is part two of a two-part special on LGBT health. UCSF hosted their 10th annual LGBTQIA Health Forum at the end of February. This year's forum focused on transgender health. Doximity had the opportunity to sit down with one of the presenters. He is current vice president of the Endocrine Society, a premier transgender health specialist, and a saint. We are proclaiming you Saint Selfless Authentica. For those of you who don't know, sainthood is the highest form of recognition the sisters can bestow upon anyone outside of our order. <laughs> yes. I'm overwhelmed. My name is Steve Rosenthal, and I am a pediatric endocrinologist at UCSF and um, I am the medical director of our Child and Adolescent Gender Center. Can you tell me how you initially got into transgender health care and research? I have been at UCSF uh, since July of 1979. Dr. Rosenthal has spent 35 of those nearly 40 years at UCSF on the faculty. During that time, he has served as the Pediatric Endocrinology Program Director and the director of the General Pediatric Endocrine Clinic. And it was in that capacity in January of 2009 that we were approached by the first family with a early adolescent that was assigned female at birth, but that identified as a male, and they were seeking help. And I had no formal training in transgender care. I didn't know what options were even available for someone that age. There was very little that was actually published at that point. In fact, so little was known about transgender health nine years ago that the first Endocrine Society clinical practice guidelines wouldn't come out for another five months after Dr. Rosenthal's first encounter with that family. But there were some studies that were in the European medical literature that uh, basically uh, began to show two things. One, the potential of using a pubertal blocker and really uh, improving quality of life, and then also the harm in not affirming uh, a young person's gender identity. And when I became aware of those two things and what this family was really asking for, because they actually knew more about this than I did, it just resonated with me. This case spurred nine dedicated years of transgender health research, and it was both very different and in some ways very similar to the case that had led Dr. Rosenthal to specialize in pediatric endocrinology in the first place three decades prior. And what drew me in actually had to do with gender, because it was dealing with babies with an intersex issue, and one of the interesting roles a pediatric endocrinologist has traditionally played in the care of a baby with a difference in sex development is assigning a, not a gender identity certainly, but assigning a gender or a sex of rearing. I remember being trained that if you quote normalize unquote the genitalia and just simply you know, raise a person according to a standard gender stereotype that nurture will trump nature and uh, everybody will live happily ever after. And I remember hearing that and thinking, no, things have to be more complicated than that. That drew me into pediatric endocrinology, but the pediatric endocrine role really was to make the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. uh, establish a treatment plan. But the really interesting stuff about gender identity was really in the realm of the mental health experts. Mm -hmm. And they weren't even that involved three or four decades ago. 
And so when suddenly this came back and it had to do with the gender, it was like, oh my goodness, everything just sort of went full circle. And suddenly it, I saw this as what I had always been looking for, in a sense, to really be able to get involved and bring together my experience as a pediatric endocrinologist and be able to have that interface with what we understand about gender and to work with wonderful, competent mental health colleagues and education and advocacy, legal experts, etc. You mentioned that there was some personal resonance for you. Can you touch on that? Well, what can I say? I, I would just say that um, I think, uh, yeah, sure, I'll say it. You know, as, as, as a gay person, I am... Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the 50s and still growing up, maybe. And, you know, I've had the experience that any number of people have, whether it's related to their sexual orientation, their gender identity, the color of their skin, the religion they practice, the experience of not being mainstream or experiencing sometimes intentional, sometimes not intentional discrimination. And when I started to meet these kids and these families, I was just so almost overwhelmed by the courage that these kids have that just want to be themselves, nothing more. And the struggles, but then also the incredible support that so many family figures, friends uh, can play in their lives and the impact that that can have. And so it just all has just meant a lot to me. You know, I'm at a point in my life where I could completely retire, but I'm so engaged by this work. Uh, every time I go to clinic, not that I don't leave really exhausted and often quite drained, but almost always, if not absolutely always, I feel so grateful to be part of our team that gets to do this work. I asked Dr. Rosenthal to reflect on what has changed since he started his work on transgender health. Within the transgender world, there are now interventions that can really radically change the horizon for a transgender person. With the use of pubertal blockers, you can take a person who is transgender and give them the opportunity not to have to go through the wrong puberty and the irreversible physical effects of that wrong puberty mm -hmm. and the damaging mental consequences of going through the wrong puberty. So you can actually do that now. Do you see a lot of patients accessing these interventions? I would say that it's certainly much more than anyone would have expected. Dr. Rosenthal says he gets new transgender patients every month. These patients range in age from young children to adults in their 20s. I think that if you take a closer look at that population, one will find that the majority of those people had a sense of being different, certainly well before being 13. An estimated 0.7% of adolescents are transgender. That's one out of every 140, though the actual numbers may be higher. Uh, and that's not trivial at all. You sort of touched on this during your talk, but since you yourself are not transgender and you're working with transgender patients, what are some things that you've learned to do or not do? Well, that's a really great question, and I feel like I'm always learning in that case. I think... We live in a very heteronormative, cisgender normative world, and we don't even recognize the privilege that people have. And I think being not transgender, I don't think that I realized at first 
when I was talking about the benefit of using a pubertal blocker, for example, is it might make it easier for someone to pass in the world. And then I learned from one of my dear and respected colleagues who is openly transgender that using the word pass sounds like you're trying to get away with something. And it's better to use a word like blend. And so like just starting to think a little bit more about the words that we use and the impact that the wrong word can unintentionally have these little, what sometimes people refer to as microaggressions. And when that happens time and again, that can add up and really have an impact. You know, I think one of the things I've tried to do is to put myself in a position of continuously learning. I mean, I just came back from a two-day conference that was completely devoted to transgender health. One of the things that was most powerful about that whole experience was that they had a panel for older adolescents, young adults who are transgender, who are basically telling their own individual stories. And you just learn so much from listening directly to people who have the courage to really share very openly and honestly. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and what you learned from them? What you realize is that for a significant number of people, there's still what um, some have referred to as gender noise. Imagine you're going to start on a pubertal blocker. Let's say you, you were born with testicles, you have a penis, but you identify as a girl and you have the relief of knowing that, that um, you're not going to have to go through boy puberty, but you still have a penis. And you feel like many of these kids hate that. And putting them on a pubertal blocker doesn't take away the fact that they still have what some people refer to as body dysphoria. But then even when you get those procedures, what if somebody finds out? Or let's say you take someone who has gone through male puberty by the time they've come in, and you know they don't want to even have what sometimes people call a real-life experience, like changing your name or your pronouns or wearing female clothing, because they know they look like a male. Or maybe they start on estrogen, but they've gone through male puberty, and maybe they're thinking, is somebody talking about me? Can they tell that my voice is low? Or when I go into a bathroom to pee, what if somebody looks under, you know, around and they see that my feet are facing one way and not the way a non-transgender woman's feet would be facing inside of a toilet? So one of the things that I have learned from listening to these young people and even transgender adults is that uh, it's not just quite so simple. It's not like, oh, yeah, make a determination, start the right treatment program, and it's like take two aspirin and call me in the morning. You know, it's no, it's not like that. There needs to be ongoing support and listening. Those are some great examples. I think those are things that most people, myself included, just don't even think about. Right. I mean, I was one of those people that didn't necessarily really think about that at the beginning. Because if you haven't lived that experience yourself, it's very hard to really know. And so that's why I think if you really want to be of help, you've got to figure out the best way to be of help. And that's to become as knowledgeable as possible. And to listen and work with people who have complementary expertise you don't have to feel like you have to know or do everything. You know, that's why I think a team approach is so important, and that's why I feel so grateful to be part of the team. Reflecting upon his career helping to address disparities faced by an oft-neglected community, Dr. Rosenthal shared these words associated with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And so like, I always uh, like to hold on to that optimism that, yeah, it can take time but we're slowly moving in the right direction. A big thank you to Dr. Steve Rosenthal for this interview. Thank you to UCSF and the organizers of the LGBT Health Forum 
and thank you for listening to the Doximity Podcast.